Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. Today we are continuing to explore the theme of optimism and I am delighted to welcome to the show Matthew Taylor. Matthew is the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts and a regular contributor to Radio 4's Moral Maze. In 2003, he was appointed by Tony Blair to head the Number 10 Policy Unit and became the Chief Strategic Advisor for the Prime Minister. Matthew's led numerous strategic and policy initiatives, for example, the review of modern employment for Prime Minister Theresa May back in 2016. And last year, he was awarded a CBE. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks, Lee. The Royal Society of Arts will be familiar to many people listening, but for those who aren't familiar with, with the organisation, can you explain a little bit about um, the Royal Society of Arts and, and, and your work there? Yeah, so the RSA is kind of a, a progressive organisation that is seeking to um, empower people to build the future that they want to build. We are a kind of unique combination of a kind of think tank, but a think tank oriented particularly to innovation and social experimentation, as well as the more traditional stuff of policy recommendations and research reports. We have 30,000 plus RSA fellows who are people who broadly share our values and that we try to empower as change makers in line with our overall kind of mission. And then we're a platform for ideas. So we have uh i've got 100 lectures every year and a lot of really brilliant online content some of which has been watched millions of times and normally i would say and that's all based in our wonderful historic headquarters just off the strand but i haven't been there since february but um yeah. they are still there and hopefully sooner or later uh once again our fellows and our uh guests and partners will be using the house and you look at loads of different uh, topics and themes like climate change, circular economy, the world of work, the impact of, of technology. Are there, are there any sort of particular areas which are, you know, super important or you're most excited about at the moment? So we've been going through a process of strategic review for some time, and that's really oriented around trying to, as far as possible, move towards more programmatic working. So moving away from the traditional kind of fair of think tanks, which is, you know, six to 12 month projects, a couple of seminars, a research report, and then you move on. Uh, into trying to work in an area for a much longer, more sustained period, but also to have multiple strands of work in that area. And so the ones that we are fastened onto are um, future of work, which has been an area for us and for me for many years. Uh, Regenerative regenerative systems, which includes our work on circular economy, but we want to go wider than that to look at this whole way of, of a kind of systemic approach to to not just sustainable but regenerative ways of, of of working and that that circular economy work at the moment is primarily in fashion but i'm sure that work's going to grow and get wider mm. underpinning that we've also got a lot of work on kind of models of change ways of thinking about change resistance to change and so that's the third strand which underpins everything else but is also of value in itself and um i'm expecting uh, us to end up also having major programmatic work on education and particularly around education for all uh, and something in the kind of space which is around kind of public services and place um, so the reform of public services but we've done a lot of work and we have an inclination towards kind of dev- devolution so it'll probably be public services but with a particular lens in relation to place and then you know like any organization like ourselves we well that's our aim but you know occasionally we do bits of work 
opportunistic reasons or we just happen to get involved in something. So there are strands running under that in relation to deliberative democracy, in relation to heritage and inclusive growth. Um, and, you know, no doubt, even though we want to work in more programmatic ways, we'll end up working in, in, in new areas because people will come to us and ask us to. Yeah, yeah. Everything you just outlined there and the, and the work of the RSA, as I said, is inherently optimistic, but you are dealing with some really sort of tough challenges and, and, and big questions. So how, how does the theme of optimism fit into your own thinking and the organization's thinking, uh, you know, if at all? For example, do you find it's helpful to frame things in an optimistical way as opposed to framing things around the negative consequences of, of not doing something or not changing? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question, Lee. And, um, you know, I, I like to imagine that I'm not an optimist because it feels to me that optimism uh, is optimism in the sense of an inclination to be optimistic regardless of the evidence or regardless of, yeah, regardless of the evidence seems to me to be problematic. I, I wouldn't want to be described as either an optimist or a pessimist because it, 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 it sounds like a predisposition when I'd like to imagine I'm more pragmatic, more evidence-based in the way that I think about things. So I'd make a distinction between optimism and progressivism. So right. optimism is a kind of personal inclination Whereas progressivism is a belief in the possibility of human progress and of substantial human progress. And I think that at the moment, progressivism is kind of under siege from a variety of, of places. I think it's under siege from kind of nativist populism, um, which has a kind of view that then in a sense, the way to understand society is not in relation really to progressing together, but it's in relation to choosing a side. And what matters is who's winning. Um, And then also I would say in relation to a certain kind of radicalism, which I have a lot of sympathy for, but which is at the moment, and maybe this is right at the moment, but feels like it's, become so disillusioned with liberal democracy um, that it's so focused on demonstrating the hypocrisy, the excesses, the oppressive nature of that which has been lauded as liberal democracy. Now, I, I'm, I feel ambivalent about this because I think it's really important. And I think the whole, I know what's happened recently with Black Lives Matter, for example, is really important. And the RSA is amongst many organisations having to think and wanting to think harder about our own history. So I think all that's really important, but I think it's a mistake, even however strong our criticisms of real, actual, existing liberal democracy, however strong those criticisms are, I think it's a mistake to reject that entirely, because I think that whatever its failings, it is still ultimately the most powerful liberal democratic systems are the most powerful way of securing human progress. And I believe that they can operate, they can flourish without the systems of oppression, exclusion, racial bias that have tainted them so badly in the past. So within the RSA or within your own approach to strategy or whether you're, you're looking at something, where, when, you, when you're approaching a subject or you're looking at the work or you're looking at, to 
deliver change. How do you frame things then? I mean, what's what's your because you've been in the uh, in quotes the business of trying to deliver change, shape public policy for many many years through politics, through think tanks and the and the RSA. So and delivering change is very hard. So how do you if it isn't about necessarily being optimistic what, what do you feel are the most sort of powerful ways of building momentum getting cons- consensus because in lots of these areas it's i would say it's not difficult to make a compelling argument for a lot of these things you can make a compelling argument for liberal democracy or doing something about climate change or social injustice making a compelling argument is not that difficult but changing it is so how do you feel uh, where have you been most successful in in delivering those kind of changes? What mechanisms do you use? I'm well, mindful thought, there's about twenty questions in there. No, by no, the way, no, I think I think there's I think it's just one really, which uh, which which is an important question. So, what is my theory of change really? And you know, and that's based on a lot of my own experience and probably more of failure than of success. Um, and the way we describe it at the RSA is we encourage an approach to change which we describe as thinking like a system and acting like an entrepreneur and so that's on the one hand understanding issues systemically and recognizing that complex issues require system level solutions rather than single one-off interventions and secondly kind of paradoxically arguably because thinking like a system requires you to kind of sit and think and reflect and talk and you know, in that famous aphorism, you know, if you've got eight hours to try to, to, to chop down a tree, you spend seven hours sharpening the axe. So that's that kind of mindset. But the second part of the phrase, uh, act like an entrepreneur, reflects the fact that the world is unpredictable, that change is contingent, and that you need to have an approach to change which says, okay, here's the system now, and this is what holds it in place here's some notion of what an alternative system might look like, but the path between here and there is really quite unpredictable. And the approach to adopt to it is uh, pragmatic, opportunistic, agile, experimental, and adaptive, which is really not the way that policymakers, generally speaking, uh, work. (laughs) And government. So that's why I guess I go back to your point about optimism, which is that, you know, I say to policymakers, spend less time thinking about the change you want to achieve which you might argue is a kind of optimistic mindset, and instead think about where change is actually possible. Uh, it is better to start with a small successful step than to run headlong into a brick wall. Um, and, you know, as COVID has absolutely demonstrated, you know, we don't know where the possibilities for change are going to come from. Um, and they can come from tragedy they can come from technology they can come from new leadership they can come from marcus rashford you know they can come from anywhere yeah and you have to have the capacity when those opportunities occur because you have a sense of where you ultimately want to take the system to of how you can seize those opportunities so that's a that's what i would describe as an opportunistic progressive mindset rather than an optimistic one per se um, and would you, just dealing with it straight on, would you describe yourself as, uh, are you like op- optimistic? Are you an optimistic person or is that something? No, I, you... I'm not. And I think it's probably because I'm slightly depressive in nature that I uh, am compelled to 
live the life that I live and work as hard as I do and constantly poke away at things and trying to make them better and try to have different ways of thinking about the world. I'm just finished writing my 14th annual lecture for the RSA, you know, and it's the RSA didn't used to have an annual lecture from the chief executive and I decided to do it in my first year and it's been a pain in the ass every year since, but (laughs) you know, it requires me every year to try to think of something substantial and original to say about the world, you know, which, and I do that because I think if I didn't do that, I would probably succumb to a kind of slightly depressive kind of attitude to the world. And, you know, that's a challenge for me now. I'm 59 and, you know, I won't go on at the RSA forever. And I have to think about how I make my life meaningful if I'm no longer able to make it meaningful by kind of doing stuff all the time. And you'll have read, I think, that I'm very fond of this phrase. It's not hope that leads to action. It's action that leads to hope. And that's really how I run my life is that I'm constantly trying to act in order to inculcate hope. And a big question, kind of existential question for me, as I move towards or start to think about semi-retirement or possibly not working 55 hours a week, which is what I do at the moment, is, you know, how will I bring meaning to my life? And, you know, I'm I'm really daunted by that, but I'm also quite excited by it because, you know, when you're an old bloke like me, you want to have new challenges in life and having a life that is meaningful without me running at it like a bull in a china shop would be interesting. I'm sure you're going to find a way. <laughs> um, in terms of optimism and and or, or things which inspire you, especially when you're dealing with um, very difficult and complex issues that you, you you're trying to change, what, what what are your sources of of, of inspiration? What, what what inspires you? Is it people, places, music? Where do you get your? You know, inspiration all of from? I think I'd say all of the all of the above. You know, I think that when I'm feeling stale and tired and uninspired then ideas are often an enormous balm for me you know i i can read a a, a great essay or a, a book and it will really reignite me um so i'm thinking you know, recently when have i done that i uh read rutger bregman's book humankind which is a really powerful case for believing that human beings are fundamentally good not fundamentally bad but it's also a kind of very entertaining expose of the ideology of human evil and selfishness and where it's come from and how it's been propagated, including kind of exposing huge amounts of social psychology as fraud, basically, which is very entertaining. And then I also read Roman Krasnarek's book on um, cathedral thinking. Uh, He calls it The Good Ancestor, which is about how we should try and think, you know, cathedral thinking is thinking about creations which won't be built until you're you're dead. So all those... All those medieval stonemasons who worked on cathedrals, knowing perfectly well they were never going to see the, the finished item, or yeah. uh, Antonio Gaudi, you know, who who died with uh, Sagrada Familia only a quarter complete, uh, or or what I think um, Native Americans call seven generation thinking, which is judging an action by what its consequences are likely to be seven generations. And so that kind of stuff, I find that really kind of takes me out of myself, you know. But, you know, it can, sometimes it can be uh, people as well. I can be really inspired by, uh, by people. So, I mean, both ways, really. Sometimes I'm inspired by how amazing people are. And sometimes yeah. I'm inspired by how completely stupid they are. And in and, and a way, the latter inspires me because I think, oh, my God, you know, I, I need to work harder for people not to <laughs> yeah. do stupid things. What can I do yeah. to stop this, you know? So, yeah. Um, 
And then I'm afraid uh, I'm also, you know, I'm also victim to various things like my support of West Bromwich Albion, which systematically have disempowered me over many, many, many years. And, you know, I, mean, I just want to say it's because, you know, you're talking to me as a serious person and all this, and it's all true. But, you know, I can tell you Friday night this week, last, you know, Friday night just passed. Yeah. I, everything was fine. I was working well, working on my annual lecture. And then West Brom lost to Huddersfield and the <laughs> whole world turned to shit, you know, and I know it's, <laughs> I'm 50, I'm a 59 year old man. I'm perfectly rational. You know, I, my, my seven year old daughter didn't delight me anymore. You know, my wife, you know, was, was an oppressor, you know, I, I, everything was too awful, you know? Wow. And yeah, I had to hide all of that because it's so pathetic. I mean, it's so pathetic. So I kind of suppress it all, but I'm in a little world of misery, a cocoon of misery. And then Saturday morning, our, our, our chief um, rivals for promotion, out of the blue, they lost. And suddenly, ah. the world was good. My daughter was charming. <laughs> My wife was the most tolerant and wonderful human being on earth. Brighton, which is where I happened to be, was, you know, I'm, where else would I want to be in the world? I had the most wonderful and blissful day, you know. And so... Uh, I'm and have you been a, a lifelong fan? Well, no, not really. I mean, in my from my twenties, I've got two of my b- best mates are Adrian Childs and Frank Skinner, and they're both West Brom fans, and they're very right. funny. Adrian and Frank, you should get them on together because uh, if we're two nil down with ten minutes to go, Frank thinks we're going to win, and if we're two nil up with ten minutes to go, Adrian thinks we're going to lose. So they're opposite <laughs> there ends you, of there the you spectrum, go. right? Yeah. So I'm kind of in the middle of it, but um, I just want to say that because you know it, it, it's it, we all rationalize ourselves and our beliefs and our values and all that and most of us are subject to the most ludicrous set i mean most amazing set of idiosyncratic prompts that can change change our mood like that i guess yeah i mean Um, i've been trying to give up west brom for years i really have you know but it's the hope that kills you i mean when they lose it's fine you know if they lose two or three times i'm a much better person because i've given up with the bastards i don't care i don't even (laughs) watch but then yeah. you see, then they start winning, and then it, you get and, pulled and in. As all football fans will tell you, it's the hope that kills you. Yeah. And you see, that's my point, right? It's an empty, hollow hope. It's not like the hope you get from action, because you, I'm a spectator. You know what influence do I have over these twenty people who play for West Bromwich Albion, the team that I love from the bottom of my heart? When all of them have quite happily pay for a play for our sworn opponents, they've offered better money, and I don't blame them for it. So, yeah, there we are. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. What are you? most excited about at the moment if we look at think about optimism in the kind of short term are, are there things that y- you see happening that are a cause for optimistic yeah. well uh, apart th- from uh, the thinking? fact that we apart from the fact that if we beat QPR on Wednesday we'll be promoted but I'm going to put that apart from that, that issue, apart from that I'll putting that to one side um yeah well I'll tell you about mine your lecture uh which may be delivered at the end of this month or maybe delivered in September I don't know I, I hand these issues over to my events team or the RSA events team and in that lecture what I call for and this is not a phrase that's going to trip off people's tongues I know but I call for an age of reflexivity and what I mean by that is I call for a period when we become more able to understand our core motivations and how those are imprinted on society and on social institutions and processes and I argue that we won't make the progress we want to make unless we are more reflexive we are more aware of the upsides and downsides of our human needs and motivations 
And I suggest that whilst we can't agree about almost anything else, maybe we could find some agreement about this. And why am I optimistic? Because I think I look at kind of three core human motivations, which is authority, we do what we're told, belonging, we do what people like us in our kind of groups do, and choice, individualism, and the things we do because of we consciously choose them for ourselves because of the person mm. that we want to be. Mm. And I argue that actually in relation to individualism, in relation to that kind of sense of wanting what we want, we have moved a long way in the last 20 years. You know, social psychology, anthropology, sociology, neuroscience, philosophy, it's all shattered that kind of homo economicus view that neoliberalism instilled into us, that we were selfish utility maximizers and, and said, no, human beings are much more complex than that. We're altruistic. We are deeply social. Uh, there is a makes- society. As someone yeah, recently said. Yeah, exactly. You know, what makes us happy is not just pursuing what we want. What makes us happy is almost certainly not pursuing wealth, power, and fame. Um, a deeper understanding of how societies like ours make us unhappy. So I, I do see a more reflexive individualism. I think people do think more deeply about, you know, celebrities who 10 years ago would have been showing off their bling and their crib are now talking about their mental health issues and the social uh, camp, you know, the social. Uh, crusades that they're on. I secondly think there's a sign of reflexivity in relation to authority. I think there's a new generations of leaders, new types of leaders who think much more thoughtfully about leadership and understand the perils of leadership. Just the other day, I was doing a talk to some people in the armed, uh, the uniformed services. And I spoke to some very senior in one of the uniformed services who has chosen to be mentored, reverse mentored by someone who works for him who's black, someone who works for him who's a single mother, someone who works for him who's gay. And I thought, you go about 15, 20 years, the idea of a very senior white bloke who recognizes there's a real issue about him being a very senior white bloke, surrounded by other very senior white blokes, choosing to be mentored by people who would put him in touch with other groups and would make him be thoughtful. So there's, I think there's real hope there now there are other areas i don't feel so optimistic about but those two i i do what worries me at the moment is belonging it feels to me as though whether it's populism or some of the some of the more some of the more kind of non-negotiable positions adopted on the left at the moment i i, I feel you mean the way we belong as in as yeah, in, I, think, I'm, I'm, I think I'm English think, or I'm. You, you, yeah, what you need French to know about belonging is that belonging is a wellspring of comfort and inspiration and generosity. And the problem of neoliberalism as a system was it denied out the importance of whether it was tradition or national sovereignty or social justice or place. It just ignored all of that. The world was flat. You know, that was disastrous, I think. Mm. So belonging is really important to us, and we must never forget how important it is to us. But at the moment, people seem to have forgotten that when you belong to one group, it means you don't belong to another group. And not only that, but it, the more you belong to one group, the more likely it is you are to start to feel less positive to another group. But in groups that all agree about something, what tends to happen is that they become more and more polarized in their view and that the ones of the most passionate views, the purest thoughts tend to rise to the top. Mm. And that belonging is very good for protest and inspiration, but it's not nearly so good as a mechanism for running things and making decisions. So 
We have a politics now which is really vibrant when it comes to social movement, but not nearly so vibrant when it comes to people who can actually do stuff and can win legitimacy and support. So, you know, that's what I'm working on at the moment. I think there are reasons to believe we could be moving into a more thoughtful, reflexive era, but there are big kind of blind spots that we've got in relation to that. So that's what my annual lecture is about. Very, very interesting. I haven't published it yet, but I've just been writing this essay on philosophy playing a greater role in business decision making. Um, and, it, and again, it's, it's about this, yeah, being more uh, reflective, reflexive, I guess. And we can have all these new tools and new technologies and analytic tools and companies have so much data they have to work with. But if the underlying basis on which you make your decisions doesn't change then you're going to repeat the same behavior and in a sense you'll be stuck in a kind of optimization funnel and if you want to chart a new path or do something different unless you change you know your values and what you believe in and what your philosophy is that's the only way you're going to make different choices or change the basis on which you make decisions. And I think that uh, I, I would agree we're kind of entering this, this period where people have been talking about this idea of a chief philosopher on the company boards for a few years. And it's always a bit abstract and a bit woolly and doesn't have a sort of tangible uh, place within an organizational structure. But this, but this idea for companies to think in the way that you've just been describing especially to handle these kind of paradoxes or contradictions and navigate these complex issues, I think is going to become the more and more important in terms of what organizational capability that they need is that ability to um, reshape their philosophies, which drives their decision-making a sort of slight tangent, but it kind of fits into the sort of universe that you, that you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, the reason I would use the word reflexive rather than reflective is that reflexivity in, in grammar is you know is, is a pronoun that refers to itself like myself or themselves and i think that the point about reflexivity is 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 to recognize that when you think of yourself as an individual you need to understand the kind of nature of what it is to be an individual and you need to understand the nature of what it is to try to make the right choices and do the right things and understand the all the many ways in which we are flawed and the cognitive frailties we've got and the biases we've got and try to deal with those and similarly that leaders have to think of the very notion of leadership and the way in which, for example, if you're a leader, you sooner or later start to think that all change needs to come from you and you need to kind of guard against that and be aware of that. And similarly, groups groups need to have that reflexivity, which means they can think about themselves as a group and understand the ways in which groups are subject to the temptation to, to other and to be more extreme and polarised and defensive. And, and so you have to think about these things as intrinsic parts of, of, of who we are. Finally, if we look at further out about this idea of optimistic with a, with a longer time horizon, what are you, what are you optimistic about when we look to, to the future? You know, I think there's still great scope for humanity to develop. I mean, look, you know, of course, the priorities are tackling climate change, dealing with inequality, whether it's local, national, or particularly global. Those are absolute pressing priorities. But beyond that, when I think of the human condition, you know, I think that we are capable of living much more fulfilled lives. And I think that we've only really started the process of understanding what it is to live a fulfilled life. If we are able to have a world, if we do tackle climate change, if we do address inequality, if we are able to 
adapt liberal democracy, and if technology offers half of what people think it can offer, it should be possible for us to have more control over our lives one day. And if we do, it's so important that we have an understanding of what it is is that are the foundations for human development and fulfillment. And I think that I see just little signs. You know, I see, to to finish on my favourite topic, which is work, that this notion that I developed a few years ago, it's not that, well, I didn't develop it. Of course, it had been around before, but popularised this notion of good work, that work should be something that we get something out of that isn't just money. Mm. It should give us respect and dignity and a sense of purpose and the, and the capacity to develop. That This idea really seems to have taken root now. And that would be an amazing thing because really since the Industrial Revolution, we've had this idea that work is just something you endure in order to survive or in order to consume. And if we can move away from that and say, no, work should be a meaningful part of our lives, that's an enormous step forward for humanity, actually, because work is the single biggest activity we undertake. So I think that, you know, what gives me optimism in a way, perversely, is how far away we are yet from how human beings could, I think, potentially be. And and so, you know, given that I've got three amazing kids ranging from two grown-up boys to a, to a young daughter, I want to believe that there's room for them to grow. And I, I think we leave them, I will leave them, we will leave them with an enormous set of challenges. But I also believe that they are capable of reaching almost a kind of higher level of human fulfillment and development. And there are little fragments that lead me to believe that's possible. Amazing. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Matthew. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for making the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure, Lee. Thanks a lot. Take care. So thanks for listening. My name is Lee Sankey and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. You can subscribe to hear about new episodes wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes. You can get in touch with your comments and suggestions via our email contact at doorglobal.com. You can also sign up to our mailing list to hear about articles and events over at doorglobal.com. Once again, my thanks to Matthew Taylor, and until next time, keep well.